I, uh, I made a coaching decision this morning, kind of. I, I decided not to go into overtime today. Um, I actually took out about 10 minutes of my sermon. And so doing that means that the slides upstairs for the scriptures got all messed up. We tried to fix them at the last minute, but in case they're not in sync with me, just give grace, okay? And uh, if you have trouble hearing me today, my voice is giving me some trouble. If you have trouble hearing me, let me know. Wave your hand or something, and I'll give the signal to the guys upstairs to turn me up. Uh, I want to read to you from First uh, Samuel chapter 16, the first 12 verses. <clears throat> the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord's not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord's not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We'll not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. We're preparing to celebrate Christmas by reflecting on the Bible story of the kingdom come. When we finally get to Christmas, we'll be ready with the Magi to ask the question, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We've seen that God created a world, and in doing so, he did more than bring matter into existence. He built a kingdom, which he intended to rule through humans who were to serve as his regents and stewards. Humans were never meant to be ruled like slaves, but to rule like kings. Indeed, as we saw last week, God gave each of us our own little kingdom, a realm over which our tiny wills hold sway. For some people, that realm is small. 
For some people, it extends only to their thoughts. Because of disease or accident or ingrained habits, even their bodies are not part of their kingdom. They do not obey them. Other people extend their realm to the point that their will holds sway over the people around them. Have you ever watched a child who's learned to rule his parents? He's expanded his kingdom. Teachers rule a classroom. Their, their wills hold sway. <coughs> Excuse me. Business magnets rule over companies and corporations. That is not, by nature, a bad thing. And it can even be a very good thing. We are meant to rule our kingdom as God's regents, and dare I say it, as his friends. Our majestic God never intended to be the king of slaves, but to be the king of kings. But he always intended for our great joy and the world's great good that our kingdoms would be subject to his loving and just rule. But our first parents thought they could retain authority over their kingdoms while rejecting God's authority over them. That was a disaster, and we live with the consequences of that choice. But God did not quit. He does not give up on his plan. God never cries uncle. He chose a man, so we saw last week, Abraham, through whom he would again establish his kingdom on earth. Abraham would be the father of many nations, and one of those nations, Israel, was to be the center of God's just rule on earth. From there, his rule was to spread through all the world. But Israel made the same mistake as our first parents. They rejected God as their king and demanded for themselves an earthly king. We explored that last week. But there's something I didn't tell you. Israel's desire for an earthly king was not the problem. God was actually planning on giving them an earthly king. The real problem was that Israel had rejected their heavenly king. Israel's demand for an earthly king came during the rule of the last and greatest of the judges, a man named Samuel. But did you know that God had centuries before given specific instruction concerning Israel's earthly kings. Through Moses, the man of God, you're going to find this in Deuteronomy 17, Israel received the criteria for her kings. Now, while these standards apply directly to Israel's kings, they also provide insight for us into what God expects of us as his subjects and as the rulers of our own personal kingdoms. Let me summarize the criteria laid down in Deuteronomy 17 for Israel's king. First, he was to be chosen by God. This is not a democratic election. God was to choose the king. His kingship was to be in and under God's will. Secondly, he was not to employ the same means to secure himself as did other kings. His security was to rest in the will of God. The Deuteronomy passage says that he must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. Now, you have to understand that horses were to that century what tanks were to the 20th century or what nuclear arms are today. They gave a nation its military edge. When God prohibited the king from acquiring great numbers of horses, it was because he wanted a king who would find his security in God and not in arms. Now, I think that same principle can be extended to us. God doesn't want you or me 
to secure ourselves by the same means used by the people around us. That is, to try to secure our lives without reference to him. And it doesn't matter what those means are, whether they involve guns and security systems or mutual funds and insurance policies. Now, it's not that God forbids us to have guns or insurance policies, just as he didn't forbid the king to have horses. He just doesn't want us, as he didn't want the king, to be the kind of people who look for their security there. We're to look for our security in him. Next, this is still Deuteronomy 17, the king was not to take many wives. In the ancient Middle East and elsewhere in the ancient world, taking many wives was not so much about physical gratification as it was about international relations. It's the reason King Solomon took so many wives, including the daughter of the Egyptian king, which would have been a diplomatic triumph. In ancient times, royal marriages were often about forging national alliances. In other words, they were about finding security without reference to God and his will. The very next criteria is the king not be a person who accumulates large amounts of silver and gold. Kings stockpiled silver and gold in case they were attacked by a more powerful nation so that they would have tribute money available to them and might perhaps avoid being deposed. Again, God did not tell the king he couldn't have silver or gold. But he didn't want the king to be the kind of person who trusts in money for his security. That certainly has implication for our lives and for our personal kingdoms. God knows that we cannot trust him for our security and at the same time be looking for it elsewhere. Whether we're looking for it in security systems and guns or in mutual funds and cash. Now, God isn't against money. In fact, he gives some people quite a bit of it. But he commands us not to treat it like a God, not to look to it for our peace and security. When Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money, he wasn't laying down some religious rule. He was stating a demonstrable fact. You can't do both. No one can. Hence the warning to kings and to us, lest they or we should try. Now finally, in the criteria for kings, and I'll talk about this a little bit later as well, for the criteria that's laid down for kings in Deuteronomy 17, the king is to write for himself on a scroll, write for himself. The king himself is to do this. He's not to give this to his aides to do, to scribes. He's to do this. A copy of this law, it is to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of the law and these decrees. God wanted his king to be the kind of person who relied on God's wisdom to govern his kingdom. A humble man who was not only in authority, but who was under authority. He would be a man who cared about God's ways and honored them. I think it's instructive that God wanted the king to write this copy of the law for himself. He wanted him to get to know it, 
to get it into his head and into his heart. He was to be a man of the book because he valued God's wisdom and recognized his authority as the high king and the king of kings. Now, the application to us is obvious. We'll look at that in a few more minutes. Moses goes on to say in Deuteronomy 17, the king must not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. See, in the nations around Israel, kings were above the law. Sometimes kings were considered the law givers and gods. But Israel's king was not to be above the law. He was not to be a law unto himself. He was to always remember that there was a king above him to whom he was willingly and joyfully subject. But in Samuel's time, Israel had in their hearts already rejected the king above them and so felt a pressing need for a king among them, an earthly one. They insisted on having a king, so God gave them a man named Saul. There were many good things about Saul. He was humble, at least to start off with. He was brave. He was a leader of men. But one wonders if God, if he was ever God's first choice. Perhaps he was. Perhaps God was going to choose him from the beginning. Or perhaps God merely gave Israel the king they were insisting on, even though the man he was preparing for the kingship Remember, God always planned Israel to have a king. Perhaps the man he was preparing for the kingship wouldn't be ready to step into that role for a few more years. Had Israel's elders listened to Samuel and waited, they may have saved themselves a great deal of trouble. Saul failed in two important ways. You can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 13 through chapter 15. He failed in two different ways, but both of them very significant. First, instead of making himself subject to God and to serve his purpose, he tried to make God subject to him and serve Saul's purpose. That's not the way it works. And the prophet Samuel told him so. He said, because you've done this, the kingdom will be taken away from you. What had he done? This is 1 Samuel 13. He tried to use religious ritual, and by extension, he tried to use God to manipulate people into doing what he thought needed to be done. And God didn't let him get away with that. God is not an idol that we can worship when we want something and ignore when we don't. Secondly, and you can read about this in 1 Samuel 15, Saul placed himself above the law and ignored, intentionally ignored God's command when it didn't suit his purpose. Now that's exactly what our first parents had done in the garden and what humanity has done trillions of times since. It's what you and I have done more times than we could ever count. And every time it's been done, a human has in effect said to the Almighty, I don't recognize you as God. I recognize me as God. Israel's kings were supposed to be a model of loving submission and authority under God. They were to look to him for their security and for the direction in which they pursued their rule. 
They were to be a preview of what it looks like for humanity to reign and rule with God. But Saul ruined the model. He distorted the preview. And so God, now this is 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, the first verse I read to you this morning, rejected Saul as king over Israel. But God, remember this, never cries uncle. He never gives up. He had another man picked out, one who would find his security in God and who would trust in his word. Now, that's still the kind of person God's looking for. The prophet Asa put it this way, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. I know I quoted that in King James, and you're looking at it in somewhere else, but God is still looking for those people whose hearts are his. God rejected Saul as king over Israel and chose another to provide the preview of the kingdom come. And then he sent faithful Samuel to anoint him as king, just as he had previously anointed Saul. By the way, the word Christ, from the Greek word Christos, and the word uh, Hamashiach in Hebrew, the Messiah, both mean anointed one. Saul was literally a Christ, albeit a false one. False in the sense that he misrepresented what God's regents could and should be like. God sent Samuel to anoint a new king. He was the one who would preview the kingdom come. But God didn't tell Samuel in advance the name of this new king. He arrived not knowing who the anointed one would be. All Samuel was told was that the next king would come from Bethlehem and would be the son of Jesse ben Obed. So he arranged a dinner and a religious ceremony in Bethlehem, invited Jesse's family, and trusted that God would show him which son he should anoint to be king over Israel. When the family arrived for dinner, Samuel was immediately impressed with the oldest son, whose name was Eliab. Scripture says Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. He was tall. He carried himself like a man of authority. He had the bearing of a leader. When Eliab entered a room, people broke off their conversations, and they looked up. He was the guy voted most likely to succeed in school, the star of the basketball team, the homecoming king. He had it all, except what was needed to reign under God's authority. Humility. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You remember what the prophet Asa said? God's eyes are ranging up and down over the whole earth, seeking people whose hearts are completely committed to him. When God looked at Eliab's heart, that's not what he saw. He saw all the things that Samuel saw, self-confidence, authority, determination, the things that society then and now considers valuable. But he didn't see what he was looking for, a heart committed to God. God's still seeking people to reign with him as his regents and stewards. His eyes are still ranging over the whole earth, even as we speak, 
looking for people whose hearts are fully his. He's not looking for religious people. He's not looking for clever people or persuasive people. He's not looking for the people that we think of as leaders or entrepreneurs or front runners. He's looking for people who are loyal to him, who take their stand on him, who are submissive to his authority and anxious to obey his word. He's looking for people who will trust him. With such people, he can change the world. With the other kind, the leaders, the front runners, the great personalities, the celebrities, the best he can do is maintain the status quo. You know, I think we all fall pretty easily into Samuel's mistake. And it's not just with people, it's with churches too. We think a church must be a good church because it has impressive buildings and high-tech audio and visual equipment and the latest, coolest music. God doesn't find that impressive. Whether an individual or a church, God always looks at the heart. He looks at the core, at the center. Is this person, is this church committed to me? Being committed to looking good doesn't count. Being committed to church growth isn't going to help. Being committed to God, to his rule, his ways, his word. That's what God's always looking for. And that's what he didn't find in Eliab or in any of Jesse's other sons until he met the youngest, David. As soon as Samuel saw him, the Lord said to him, he's the one. He's the one who would preview the kingdom. David was, as God said, a man after my own heart. God expected his king, now this is Deuteronomy 17 again, to find his security and submission to God and his direction in God's word. That describes David beautifully. David who said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He's the one who said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He wrote, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? He looked at God's word for direction. As for God, he wrote, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He understood that the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. David was the kind of man that God could use to give the world a preview of the kingdom come. Now we need to fast forward through a decade and more. Saul was dead. David had become king of Israel. He was the man who would provide the world that preview of the kingdom of God. His heart was fully committed to God, so much so that his first official act after solidifying the kingdom was to draw up plans to build a beautiful temple for the worship of God. That wasn't God's will for David. And God told him so. But at the same time, in that same chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the key chapters in the Old Testament, at that same time, he told him something else that is critical for us if we're going to understand the kingdom come. We find in verses 11 through 13, there we read, the Lord declares to you, this, by the way, is called the covenant with David. The Lord declares to you, he's speaking to David, that the Lord himself will establish a house, a dynasty, for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is not here talking about a kingdom preview. He's talking about a kingdom forever. He's talking about the kingdom come. He is going to bring back the original plan for creation. He's going to bring about the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham to bless all the peoples of the earth through him. And he intends to do this by raising up David's offspring or David's seed to succeed him. Now you see where all this is leading, right? It's leading right back to Bethlehem, to the one who's born king of the Jews. It's leading us to Christmas. Now let me wrap this up. And this is where I left out the the 10 minutes, but I'm coming back to that next week. It's important for us to get. Let me wrap this up. One of the themes running through all the texts we're looking at in this Kingdom Come series is that the God who's called you into his kingdom keeps his promises. He is no quitter. Remember that in the dark times. He will not quit on you. Don't you quit on him. And then this. I've been talking about God's anointed ones, the kings, Saul, David. But did you know that we, that is we who've put our faith in Jesus Christ, if you've not done that, I'm going to ask you to do that today. That we who've put our faith in Jesus Christ are also anointed ones. Paul says that God who makes us stand firm in Christ has anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. John likewise says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. Do you see what that means? It means that we too are anointed. We are, don't misunderstand this when I say it, anointed ones, that is, we are Christ's. If we've been connected to God through faith in Jesus. We are little Christ's, which is what the word Christian actually signifies. You see what this means? It means that we, like David before us, can present the world a preview of the kingdom come. God intends our lives to be a demonstration to family and friends and even enemies of the nature and power and beauty of his rule among those who look to him and his authority and listen to his word. We're little Christs. Now we can be little false Christs like Saul or little true ones like David depending on whether or not we own God's rule over us and direct our lives by the word he's spoken to us. Now that doesn't happen by accident but by intention and decision. People don't wander into the kingdom of God They choose, always in response to God's gracious invitation, but they choose to live 
under God's authority and in obedience to his word. People who don't make that choice have already chosen otherwise. Now, one last thing, and this is very practical. God instructed his kings to write out his law in their own hands and keep a copy of it near at hand. He knew that that would be a great help to them. So let me suggest something. Why don't you do something similar? Why not take a significant section of Scripture, say the book of Colossians or the Sermon on the Mount, and write it out word for word in a notebook? You could do it on your computer, but I suspect it would be more helpful to do it by hand. I know the way I type, I'm not really thinking about the words I'm typing if I'm reading them. So if I do it by hand, I have to think about what I'm looking at. The problem is I can't read what I write by hand, but that's a whole other matter. Writing it out will help write it in to your thinking. And then keep it someplace where you can refer to it often. If you do this with an openness to God, I am sure he will use it to bless you richly. Now let's pray. God, apply this to our hearts as you see fit. Oh, that you would make us to be for the people around us, people in our families and in our work, a preview of the beauty of the kingdom that's coming. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name.